All right, fellow gemstones, welcome <laughs> back to another episode of the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Evan Roosh, and joining me, as always, the one, the only, Jacob Shop. No, it's me, Richard Butler. <laughs> hey, young man. I, oh, no. I'm, I'm, uh, I lead a group called uh, the, Aryan, the Aryan Brotherhood. And you know what's fun about the name is for recruitment, Aryan, more like Aryan. You want to <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't don't mind the armband. It's just got a a swastika on it. But would you like to join? <laughs> okay, the Arya in just <laughs> you had me sold. Not really, Richard, but I have a couple more questions with you. I see the uh, flag in the background on all your speeches. Um. Yeah, Who does your graphic design? I think you guys misrepresented. I, 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 made, I made that. Oh, was it on a... My granddaughter helped me. Ah, I see. was on a cocktail napkin. Get the hell out of here, Richard. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's me. <laughs> we got to stop uh, making an open invite we, yeah, for, we our, gotta for our podcast. I don't even know how he got in here. See, every <laughs> we've been looking for new co-hosts, and he did not fit the bill yeah he heard part one he's like oh i think i could get in on this part yeah he's like uh i have some thoughts on on what you guys uh were saying there we did nothing wrong he was like you need a healthy dose of an old racist right like you know what this young youthful podcast could do who often says that they hate what i stand for <laughs> white aryan brotherhood ideals they could use a warbling old piece of shit yeah right <laughs> But yeah, and that was actually that was very good voice representation. I was thinking of that Arya end line. Like, that was all tremendous. <laughs> I was like, all right, I know I'm doing the character, and I gotta come up with some funny, stupid thing to say. So honestly, I was trying my best to play along, but like when I heard the Arya end, that just got me. That <laughs> really you, did. It took you a second to register. Too. <laughs> well, I didn't like at first. Like it didn't register like with the voice, but then I put. <laughs> Put it together like that's just wow. But yes, hello, it's me, Jacob Trapp. I am also here. <laughs> that's the most dynamic intro I think we've ever had. Hey. We had a desk jockey voice as well as the voice of a leader of uh, Christian identity slash prominent member in white supremacist society. Welcome so, back to Ruby Ridge Part Two, folks. Yeah, can we make sure not to put featuring Richard? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give people like perspective, like perspective new listeners any ideas. Like, oh goody, we have my hero on. I wanted to make him the intro character just because he sounds like a wet dog chewing salami. Like he has mm-hmm. the most like nasally but old man voice in the world, and he sounds like an asshole. That's like spot on. Like the salami, the dog chewing a salami is yeah. perfect. I was gonna say a salami or like even a blueberry, like really mushy. Yeah, just with like a little bit of crunch, but then like it just goes so much. How people looked at him as a leader and were like, "He's got it right." <laughs> right. I mean, you probably just they looked at him as a leader because like he could host. You know. True. Like everyone's okay with people that you know can put on some hot dogs on the grill and have a nice little lake property. Yeah, when they don't have to set everything up. <laughs> right. But anyways, how are you doing, Ev? Doing great. Uh, for everyone that listened to our... When I say I was going on all the trips, was that, I believe, the... That was our year in review episode? 
Either way, um, went to the first trip location for January, went to Minneapolis, had a tremendous time. Like, the place is just chock full of, like, amazing breweries, amazing restaurants. I had a great tour guide. Um, It was just all in all, like, a really fun time. Also, I'm addicted to caribou coffee now. (laughs) Like, I had it, and I was like, whatever, this is just going to be, like, a Starbucks. But, no. Caribou coffee is supreme. All hail, all hail caribou. Yeah, my cousin and his uh, husband live in Minneapolis, so I've been there to right, visit right. a few times. It's a really cool city. What are your plans for your next trip? In February, I'm going to Florida. Oh, so, sweet. Yeah, yeah, like completely polar opposites. Of, yeah, a little warmer. Yeah, so going there uh, mid-February and already have like a deep-sea fishing trip planned. Going to be on the beach a lot. Um, I'm actually planning on visiting some coworkers as well, oh, nice. just cause like I rarely get to see any of them cause I'm in Wisconsin. They're all in Florida, but yeah, that's uh trip number two. Bring your sunscreen. I <laughs> especially am... after being inside all winter. <laughs> right. Yeah. For those that don't know, um, I burn like crazy. Yeah. Like exposed to. It's the iteration. 30... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exposed to like 30 degree weather. If the sun's out, like I'll get fried. So. Gonna be rocking SPF 100. Gotta do what sure. you gotta do. Yep. That sounds like a lot of fun, though. Oh, yeah. Be excited. Are you very excited to continue our story about the Weavers? I am. I'm actually really excited. I was actually thinking about this, too, on the uh, five-hour drive to Minneapolis. Yeah, you had a lot of time to think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's insane, like, how much recorded things and, or just how much information we have on this case. Yep. You know, like, most... Of the, like when you think about like the most interesting cases of U.S. history, like you think there's always like a piece of the evidence missing. There's always like a key encounter missing, like some type of information is lost. But with this, we literally have everything that happens. Yeah, and that's just very much a credit to Jess Walter. Was that the name of the book? Yeah, that he's the guy that wrote the book. Right. Yeah. So it's very much credit to him that we have all this information. Yeah, and. This is reporting before 9-11, before there was really like a 24-hour news cycle. Right. So a lot of what, like the reporting at the time was focused so much on detail and mm. like getting the story right. Huh. So <laughs> <laughs> this, is bef- this is a time before like what we have now for, for news. But yeah, the only real things that were kind of like contentious points there's stuff with the fbi because right. the fbi likes to do fbi things and not tell all of the truth so we'll get into that on the next episode when right. we get to the trial and all that stuff but right right i think the uh the biggest feedback that i got so far from like just the first part was like the setup is so normal yeah like it, it it's pretty much what everyone said it's just like how does this normal family end up becoming the story that we're going to talk about. A lot happens. <laughs> yeah, a lot does happen. A lot happens. <laughs> and for those of you joining us again, we left our friends, the Weavers, Vicki, Randy, and the family. They just moved out of Iowa to the remote northern woods in Idaho. And after growing anxious of their idyllic city life in Iowa, they kind of wanted isolation. They wanted to get away. And they also knew that the end times were coming, according to their visions that they were having. So now they had another kid that they were kind of looking after named Kevin Harris, who was older than all of their children, but also still a kid himself. 
and he was kind of coming in and out of the house whenever he was in town. And the walls of society were kind of closing on them again because their friends were starting to turn against them, spread rumors about them. And so Randy remembered, well, there's a new group of people that might be interesting to look into that may be more friendly to us. And that was the Aryan Nations. Do you ever wonder how we happened upon just the entire Aryan Nation? Like, do you think there was a flyer involved? No, his friend uh, Frank Kumnik, he actually went to the Aryan Nations, like, I don't know how regularly, but he had been there. And so he recommended, like, hey, you might be interested in coming. So that's how he actually got introduced to it. I don't think they knew when they bought their land that this this was even like as close as it was because it was like less than twenty miles from where they set up their house. Always got to check on the uh, local neighborhoods <laughs> yeah. when you uh, go on. But I guess for them it probably would have been a perk. So. Oh, when they found out, they were psyched. Yeah, they were like being just chill on their own mountain, had some guns, and go see some dudes in hoods. Right, and we'll get into it. But like Randy was never officially a part of the Aryan Nations. So. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to say that they actually joined, but they definitely attended. So they definitely participated. Also, also not a good thing. <laughs> right. So right. so the Aryan Nations were kind of another racist separatist group. And while the Ku Klux Klan was kind of becoming the face of racism in America, they were kind of pushing the religious angle to the white nationalist movement. Uh, So they subscribed to the Christian Identity Movement, which was a strict evangelical mix with Mormon beliefs alongside strong American nationalism and a strict belief that the white Europeans were the lost tribes of Israel and the Jews were the spawn of Satan. (laughs) That always makes me crack up. Just like, in what world are whites the lost tribes of of Israel? No world. Like, based on what I put, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that, that was the, what they subscribed to, and it was led by our friend, not friend, <laughs> Richard Butler, who uh, he claimed he had around 6,000 members by 1983 in the Aryan Nations, and that's kind of when the FBI started paying attention, and Evan's going to go into uh, a little more detail on some of the splinter groups of the Aryan Nations that really got the FBI's attention. Right, right. Yeah, you mentioned our friend uh, Richard Butler, but I don't think we're friends anymore since uh, someone kicked him off our podcast earlier today. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no no real complaints. I'm sure our listeners are probably psyched about it too, but um, just to give a little bit of background on um, just Richard Butler as well as just where he hosted all of his fun little parties. So uh, Richard Butler moved... Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Now I get all I can picture is just Chuck E. Chuck E. Cheese like in a hood. He's <laughs> you see Richard Butler in like the ticket vortex thing. Right. <laughs> it's my birthday. It's my birthday. It kind of makes him sound that voice kind of makes him sound like Nixon, like the <laughs> Nixon impression. He probably shouldn't go around saying that, but <laughs> that might get us in. We trouble. are not associating him to Nixon, right? But if you want to, you can. It's a free country. <laughs> but Richard Butler moved to Northern Idaho. In the 70s, where he bought a 20-acre compound there uh, in Hayden Lake. So, very nice lakefront property. A good 20, 20 acres. Also so very pro- close to Hayton. Hayton Lake. Like Hayton. Hayton everyone else. Like Hayton. Everyone else with different they, colors. They, they be Hayton. We be skating. We be, yeah, everyone else in Idaho is skating. <laughs> or snowboarding. But like Jacob mentioned, uh, with the religious group called Christian Identity, um, 
basically was just preaching the nonsense that white people were the true Jews, the true people of of God, and that Jews were imposters, and that people of color were mud people who denigrate everyone else. Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand how they just literally took Jews and just flipped it on its head. They're like, no, the Jews are bad. We're the good ones. And then call yourself the the actual Jews. Like, right. what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, Jewish history, like, or just biblical history just has the Israelites as well as the Jewish people going through a ton of hardships throughout, um, like, especially the Old Testament. And then he's like, no, that was made up. <laughs> White people have had it really tough, too. <laughs> Good old nitpicking the Bible again. Ah, come on, Richard. Can we just call him Dick Butler from now on? (laughs) She's going to say good old Dick Butler. Dick Butler. But every July, Dick hosted the Aryan World Congress, which sounds exactly, uh, you can just, you can literally just picture it. Just a lot of whites. Yeah. uh, Which drew hundreds of white separatists and white supremacists and racists of various stripes. Some were members of the the Ku Klux Klan. Some were posse comitas. Some of them didn't believe in God. Some of them did believe in God. Some of them were outlaw bikers. Some of them wore camouflage. But they all pretty much despised the government, as well as people of color. But the idea of this entire Hayden Lake retreat was for all these different minds to come together, have a couple meals, and to basically get get together and network, which is hilarious to think about just... When you think of a networking event, I can't imagine a hood anywhere. Yeah, you, you and me, it's like, oh, we're having a networking day or like a bonding day at work. Right. We're going out for a happy hour. Yeah. These guys <laughs> just like stood around a burning cross and danced. It's like very different. Right. And a big thing that I saw in all of my research um, sources, I believe it was the PBS.org um, resource, was that, like they thought that they were having like legit philosophical debates and randy weaver even himself thought like he was having real philosophical debates that's why he was drawn there because he was like i want to challenge my beliefs like Mm -hmm. he was very much always a proponent of that and that's why him and uh keith julie's husband Mm -hmm. got into such like tense debates at sunday dinners is because keith being like a liberal and in a rock band and all that they had very opposing views so right randy welcomed the opportunity to kind of go back and forth oh he probably he sounds like the most annoying person to have at a dinner yeah <laughs> like you're just trying to have a nice like pork chop yeah dinner. and especially when he's like not confident in what he's saying because he keeps looking back to his wife yeah to make sure that he's doing okay but one of the people that were networking at Hayden Lake in the early 80s was a young man from Arizona named Bob Matthews. Matthews was in trouble with the IRS and had a huge hatred for the government. Like, absolutely huge. Even the mafia knew not to mess with the IRS, and this guy just did not get the memo. Right. <laughs> uh, he also had a great urge to actually act upon the hatred. So Hayden Lake, a huge congregation of... Not great people with great ideals, but a lot of them didn't really feel the need to actually act on the stuff. Bob Matthews, who was the founder of what we're going to call, or what they called themselves, the Order, actually wanted to act upon this hatred against the government as well as against people of color as well. Yeah, they actually started off with the name 
the Bruder's Schweigen, which means the uh, Silent Brotherhood in English. Sure, and sure. And then eventually became known as the Order. So these guys were very much buying into the uh, neo-Nazi oh, yeah. tagline. <laughs> and he actually got the name The Order from the like a 1978 dystopian novel called The Turner Diaries. Ah, the handbook for racists everywhere. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like that fictional... Uh, book, uh, as well as the fictional entity, the order that Matthew's got the name. Um, him, him and his followers were of the opinion that Jews were taking over the country, and if they didn't act, the white race was doomed to failure. So the dozen or so members of the order declared war on the United States. Yeah, and they uh, they'd called it the Zionist Occupied Government, or the ZOG. And Randy Weaver's one of his favorite shirts had that printed on the front and it was like death to the zog or something like that and he was seen wearing it in like a bunch of pictures oh, out in the of the few times that they actually let their family be photographed right so the zog what do you know about me <laughs> <laughs> uh to finance their war bob matthews and his followers started counterfeiting money and when that didn't work as well they turned to robbery and their first outing was very modest, only stealing about three hundred sixty-nine dollars from a from from an adult bookstore uh, in Spokane. Uh, wow, they didn't have more money there, huh? Nope. <laughs> in Idaho, in Northern like, Idaho, adult bookstore. Right. There's literally a million people in the entire state. I don't think many have the guts to not guts, but like desire to go to an adult yeah, bookstore yeah. on the on the frequent. Um, but then they started targeting banks as well as armored cars and stole hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in June of 1984, they actually bombed a synagogue in Boise and later that month assassinated an outspoken Jewish talk show host named Alan Berg in Denver. So they're definitely getting, this group was definitely getting more and more violent. Basically just, they started out with just a simple robbery of a, place that sold porno magazines um to assassinate people yeah and like those armored cars they robbed there was one that they robbed in california they got three million dollars right. from one of them so right, right. these are not small time burglaries no. anymore these are like large federal hits right and that's really what got the attention of the fbi to really start tracking this group um but i mean they were already pretty late to the party the fbi was so they basically had to play catch up to actually start honing in on this group that's doing all this basically domestic terrorism. Yeah, the FBI guy, his name was Wayne Manis or Manus, and he like got transferred to Idaho and basically they told him, You've gotta figure this out. <laughs> and so he's like, All right, I guess I'll do my best. Can you imagine being the FBI agent of Idaho? It's yeah. like I have the just a nice easy desk job, like nothing like a moose got on the loose, like I'll have to go arrest that and then just Domestic terrorists yeah. right there. It's like the congregation spot of like the KKK. White nationalist militia is nice. Right. It's like, oh, this is fun. But uh, eventually, a man named Moreland, who was a reporter, started working with the FBI. Uh, he helped them out with kind of who was who uh, with the order. Started pinpointing different driver's license, uh, mug shots. Um, started getting pictures of these uh, different criminals. Um, and on one occasion, Moreland actually learned where some of the order's money was being hidden and got a call from a senior Justice Department prosecutor asking him to hold the story because they need a way to get a search warrant. So 
this is kind of one of those examples where a media member helped out the FBI to bring down this racist group. And it also helped that in it took till 1983, but the uh, task forces that were kind of set up to help fight the Aryan nations finally convinced Idaho legislature to pass a law in 1983 to make it a felony to intimidate someone because of their race. So that <laughs> finally pushed right. so that they had criminal charges to file against a lot of these people because now the Aryan nations couldn't publicly go out and just start berating people just because of who they were. Yeah, people forget that happened in 1983, like 40 years ago. Yeah. That's not a long time. Yeah, and it, didn't, it took till like 94 to get like a law, international law against genocide. Right. So it's like, we're not too far ahead of the curve. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, the big break in bringing down the order uh, was when one of its members couldn't resist using counterfeit cash to buy lottery tickets. That happened in Philadelphia, and the mistake was really made because he went there twice. Uh, he was arrested and then flipped to be an informant for the authorities, and he led them to the Capri Motel in Portland, Oregon, where members of the order, including Matthews, were hiding out. A gunfight ensued, but Bob Matthews escaped. Matthews and his remaining followers fled to Whidbey Island, a remote place on Puget Sound, west of Seattle with the FBI hot and on their trail. A number of SWAT teams were called in. Agents managed to convince everyone to surrender, except Bob Matthews. Matthews. Yeah, this guy was very dedicated to yeah. his cause. He was quite literally a ride or die, so the agents knew that he was heavily armed and tried to smoke him out, but it didn't work. They then brought in a helicopter to fly over the place, and Matthews opened up a machine gun volley, not volley, but just opened up with machine gun rounds on the helicopter. Agents fired back, but Matthews just kept on shooting and shooting. Um, It went on like this for 36 hours. It then started to get dark. Uh, The agents then launched illumination rounds into the house, and the house caught fire and started to burn. No one came running out. And when the agents finally went in, when the smoke and fire subdued, they found the charred remains of Bob Matthews in a bathtub. Can't imagine having that much of a level of dedication, and neither did the feds. They never really expected this amount of fanaticism. Um, And the events of Whidbey Island, of basically the order coming down, really launched uh, a lot more attention into this group of people. Knowing that they were this willing to it's kind die. Of, kind of ironic that this super dedicated white nationalist ended up getting burned alive, so his body literally became black. Black, yeah. So <laughs> take that. Yeah. <laughs> the irony. But um, that's kind of all I have for the order. Um, just to kind of wrap up on Hayden Lake, just with the increased FBI and federal interest in Bob Matthews as well as Hayden Lake. Uh, By the early 90s, Hayden Lake was actually crawling with federal informants. And both the FBI and the ATF, uh, which was the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which I had no idea. I've always heard ATF, but I just figured they had something else better to do than alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. uh, They were regularly conducting investigations and even said, like, you might have a meeting of three suspected white supremacists in a car. And two of them would actually be government informants. Yeah. 
uh, and they'd just be basically listening to each other, one informant for the FBI, one informant for the ATF, um, but not really knowing that they're basically trying to accomplish the same thing. Right. It's literally the 21 Jump Street where, yeah, right. <laughs> where they're right, like right. at the party and find out that he was undercover too. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, like all of these people are crawling around the compound and eventually one of them hears about this man causing kind of a stir in northern Idaho alongside this Aryan Nations compound, a man named Randy Weaver. And so the local FBI guy who was in charge named Kenneth Weiss went to kind of keep tabs on him and he had heard about the allegations that the neighbors of the Weavers had kind of leveled against them. And then the Weavers kind of retold that they were under the eye of a conspiracy that was trying to tarnish their reputation. So after kind of meeting people that knew Randy, and then I think he actually talked to Randy himself because that's where he reiterated that they were being targeted, he said that there was really no need to keep keep up with Randy. He was not Mm -hmm. that important to them. And so Wayne Manis, the man in charge of overseeing all of the operations, kept a mental note of who Randy was. But like Evan said, all these task forces were starting to get set up. And all these task forces, none of them cooperated with each other. They pretty much all kept all of the information they got to themselves, which like you could have two out of three and neither one would know the other one was an informant because no one was talking to each other. It was just a giant game of who knows what. Mm -hmm. So the ATF particularly was really swamped because they got charged with keeping track of all the guns in America because the overarching department of justice said guns are the currency for cults and white nationalists. So we really need you guys to start cracking down. And I mean, you're the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, so makes sense that you would be in charge of that. Right, it's one of your initials. you got to lay down the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So arrests started to be made, and the man who would later defend Randy Weaver in court was defending the people that were getting arrested. His name was David Nevin, but we'll hear about him more in Part 3. So Randy and the family started taking trips to the Aryan Nations compounds, and Sarah one of the Weaver daughters remembers it kind of just was like a family vacation. Uh, They kind of used it as a way to socialize because they're so isolated on the mountain. They finally have a group that they are welcomed in. So Randy and Vicky just said, yeah, we'll take the kids there and like, just get them out to play with other kids. I mean, they're wearing swastika armbands, but it doesn't bother us. So, (laughs) Just but imagine it, like being one of those kids trying to play like, hopscotch, except all the different hopscotchers are like swastika forms. Right. There's like or like four square. It's all just <laughs> eek. So yeah, they weren't looking to join the Aryan Nations. They just wanted to get out for the social aspect. While they were attending these these meetings and stuff, another group that was cleverly named the Order Two Electric Boogaloo <laughs> was also committing bombings in Idaho. So these guys were pretty fucking stupid. They were not nearly as smart as the original order, and they got captured pretty quickly. But none of the members, when they were captured, gave like any information really about the Aryan Nations. And one of the members was even quoted as saying, I offer no apologies except for having failed to meet our goals. Learn from our mistakes and succeed where we failed. 
the Bruderschweiger has shown you the way. And that was the motto at the 1896 World Congress for the Aryan Nations. So when Randy Weaver and Frank Kumnick visited, they were surrounded by Confederate flags, that motto, and T-shirts booths holding shirts that said Adolf Hitler World Tour 1939 and 1945. I just don't get like... Well, a lot of this, but just yeah, literally those, none of this. Those shirts, like, where else could you wear that kind of yeah, shirt? Yeah, exactly. Like, without getting punched in the dick. I actually saw something interesting. I think it was yesterday on Reddit, and it was pretty much this guy said, like, I met a bar owner once, and I sat down. Like, I never really talked to this guy. He was kind of rude to me. So we didn't really talk to each other, and then a guy sat down next to me, and immediately the bartender said, get out. And he, the guy was like, I'm just here to get a drink. It's not a pro, like not a big deal. And the bartender like grabbed a baseball bat and said, get out of my bar. And after the guy left, the, uh, the guy telling the stories, like asked the bartender, why'd you kick that guy out? And he's like, oh, you couldn't see it from where you were sitting, but he was a neo-Nazi. He had an armband and then his shirt had a bunch of like lightning bolts and stuff on it. And he's like, the problem is once you let him stay here, eventually he becomes a regular and then he starts bringing all his friends, and eventually you're a Nazi bar. Yeah, that's bad for business, Bob. Yeah, so it's it, pretty interesting, like, how normal it could be just to have that happen. Right. Like, it, it's very quick when something like that becomes normalized. Yeah, I just have no words. I can't imagine being so... I, I just can't imagine. But that's... Like, it's just but, different to the mindset, I but guess. But that's where people could have worn the Adolf Hitler shirt, I guess. Right, so. Yeah. <laughs> But it was also at this World Congress that Randy and Frank would meet a man who called himself Gus Magisono, but was actually an undercover informant for the ATF, whose real name was Kenneth Fadley. So to put this in very broad strokes, very broad strokes right at the beginning, Kenneth Fadley was assigned to witness Randy Weaver committing a crime in order to flip him to give up information on higher ups of the Aryan Nations. But it kind of took him a long time to get himself in a position to do that because he became involved with the ATF after a cop friend of his had been killed during an investigation of biker gangs. That was kind of his spur to get into law enforcement. And he quickly became one of the best at infiltrating the Aryan Nations. And then at the 86 World Congress, ran into Frank Kumnick. So him and Frank talked for a while, and then eventually Frank introduced who he knew as Gus to Randy. But Randy really did not seem involved. He wasn't connected to the Aryan Nations, and he was a nice guy. And pretty much everyone that said like anything about Randy at this point in his life said he was relatively nice. Like He wasn't there to cause problems. So, I mean, he's at an Aryan Nations meeting, so it's, I feel like those guys, anyone who like talks to them, they're like, he's nice. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> They didn't, he didn't immediately become filled with rage. Like <laughs> yeah. I, all of us would. Yeah, exactly. Since he was nice, Fadley really didn't think he had to bother with him. So he just kept in touch with Frank because Frank was very much more vocal about his views. Right, right. So Frank and Fadley met up to discuss organizing a group to follow in the footsteps of the Orders 1 and 2, which would probably be called the Order 3, I would assume. I mean, their marketing department isn't great. No. So I assume that's probably what's. Uh... I mean, what I, they would have landed on? I guess they had a brand that worked, so they just stuck with it. <laughs> right. It's tried and true. Yeah. So to organize this group, they needed some men that they could trust. So one of the next times that they met up, Frank brought Randy with him. 
So the three men met for coffee and then moved into Frank's Jeep Wagoneer to discuss their plans further, kind of in private. So Kenneth Fadley was in a very hot seat because he was wearing a wire at this point. And he was almost caught when Frank pulled out a stud finder that would have beeped if it ran over his hidden wire. But he pretty much took it from them took it from Frank and just started playing with it and said, what is this stud finder? Like played it off really well while he had his hand on his pistol in his boot and got away without getting caught. It's like he put the stud finder on his arm. It's like, Oh, I guess it works. Yeah. Like the he, classic put, joke. he put it on Frank and it beeped on Frank's chest cause he was wearing dog tags and then oh. it got Frank off the topic. So he was very close that is to getting caught. Very smart. So he though. was ready for this to turn into a shootout in the car. Ooh. And then that's actually where the story ends. <laughs> yeah, right. Roll, roll credits. So he eventually got off the topic and Frank started talking about what his plans were going to be, which, among other stupid things, involved putting epoxy into bank vault locks so that they couldn't get in, catching and stripping IRS agents of their clothing and letting them loose naked in public, and burning fields of hops belonging to Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Frank really wasn't planning like hurting anyone. I mean... It would suck to get stripped in public and having to walk home. But then again, you're messing with the IRS again. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. Just leave the IRS alone. Like I, The IRS is quite literally a dragon that's yeah. looking down every single bad guy like, yep. in United States history. Yep. But it sounds like he's very much just more looking to do pranks instead of actually acting on like yeah. doing some of like the order nonsense very much so not excusing because i'm sure he probably eventually wanted to get into right that, it but... was more so it's like he wanted to make some statements and get their idea out and i think it was more so for recruitment purposes so that people would yeah. come but the meeting ended uh between the men when ken told frank to write him a list of three things that he wanted to get done with this new group they're setting up by april of that year which included epoxy in the bank vault locks. Uh, so Kenneth avoided getting captured, but he still had to keep working. So that's some stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about what life on the mountain was like. So we've been talking, or last episode, we talked about the construction of their house, kind of what uh, the dimensions were, as well as what it was made of. So now let's dive into what life on the lovely little mountain was. There's birds chirping. There's a flute playing in the distance. The sound of music is constantly, like, they didn't have a TV, but it's somehow being played. Immediately interrupted by a bunch of guns. Yeah. Immediately <laughs> <laughs> interrupted by blah! <laughs> but uh, Gene and David Jordanson, and if you recall, those are the parents of Vicky, uh, continued their annual visits to Vicky, Randy, and to see their grandchildren in the new mountain home. Vicky was the workhorse, and her parents were very impressed with her work ethic. She taught the children, repaired the home, served as a doctor, and cooked. Her father helped her rig up a washing machine, as well as a screen door. And the, ki- the kids themselves were very smart and constantly learning. Like we mentioned in the last episode, they had a ton of books. Their main form of entertainment was reading. Yeah, and with the, when their grandparents would come visit, they'd always bring books with them. And it was said that sometimes Sammy would read, like, two of the books within a day. Like, he was very ready to just start reading. And, like, he had the Constitution memorized, like, knew all the capitals of every state, knew all the presidents in order. Like, they were smart kids. That is actually very impressive because I could not tell you, like, who our eighth president was, like, right. for example. Like, I have 
I could not tell you. And we do a history podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Sarah, uh, who, of course, was one of the daughters, told her grandparents during these visits that mom and dad actually never pushed any of their beliefs on them, but encouraged them to read and find out for themselves. Uh, by, by the fall of 1987, the family wanted to leave the mountain for winter and found a red house in town. They were leaving their isolation, and Vicky's parents hoped that maybe this would break them out of their paranoia. They even let themselves be photographed at this time. Which was very rare. They did not let this happen very often. And Randy brought out his best Zog shirt. He did. <laughs> uh, but in the warmer months, they would continue to work on the house, as well as built a medium-sized shed as a guest bedroom for apparently all the guests that they were planning on having in their apocalypse. Um, and Vecchi even went to call it a menstruation shed. Yeah, I think this is probably where like Kevin Harris would stay when he came to visit and stuff like that. Right, so right. he's not sleeping on the floor. In between all the menstruation. <laughs> it's like every time a guy says it has to be said in like hushed <laughs> undertones. <laughs> I'm sorry, all female listeners. I'll grow up. Uh, one day. E- one day. Uh, even though Randy was progressing his racist beliefs through his Aryan Nations meetings, uh, there was still hope that the family, or there was hope, excuse me, that the family did make it through their worst struggles. So they had the house built. Um, they even had an extra <laughs> menstruation shed uh, built, and things were starting to look up, I would say, and I, for them. I don't remember if it's at this point, but Vicky's end date that she had set for the apocalypse or the end times or whatever, I, I don't know if it has passed yet, but eventually it does pass while they're living on the mountain. and. You would think that after that happens, they would be like, oh, maybe we were wrong. Mm-hmm. But as is with a lot of these extremists, like cults too, it's like you can just move the goalposts. You can just be like, oh, well, God just decided that it wasn't time yet. It's, it's that easy to just change it up. I misread the text. Yeah. The texts. <laughs> right. I misinterpreted it. Yeah. Oh, no. It's oh. clearly happening in another, like, 100 days. But I didn't misinterpret that we're the Jews. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. They just got their uh, dates crossed. Yeah. They couldn't be wrong in anything else. But uh, Randy Weaver still wanted to make an impact on the community as well as change uh, the way things were run. Like we mentioned in episode one, he did want to be an FBI agent yeah. at some point in his life. Um, he was also Green Beret, so like he wanted to make a change. Um, but now, he saw an opening to run for sheriff in Boundary County, and he ran on the Republican ticket. The big uh, theme of his campaign was based that he would uphold the laws that the people wanted and enforce the ones that the people wanted. But he only enforced 102, or excuse me, he only received 102 votes and lost the other Republican who got 383. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he pretty much said, like, I'll enforce what you guys want me to enforce if you guys think it's important, but otherwise I don't really care. Right, yeah. <laughs> He's like, do your thing. I'll get involved when you want me to. Yeah. Um, in the summer of 1989, the whole family planned to attend the Aryan Nations World Congress. They dropped the word Christian from their Christian identity beliefs, started referring to God as Yahweh and Jesus as Yahshua, Randy said he didn't subscribe to the group's overarching beliefs, that meaning the Aryan Nation's overarching beliefs. But like we mentioned before, he just really enjoyed the talks and the philosophical debates that tested everyone's thinking. The family camped in tents, and the skinheads and the racists who met them were impressed by the family. 
which <laughs> is not something I want on my resume. No. Oh, the skinheads and racists at the Aryan World Congress were really impressed by my family. Right. You never want like one of your references down as um, Richard Butler and or a Bob Matthews. Yeah. Or as a or a Frank Kumnick. Kumnick. Thank you. Yeah, not great. Um, at the end of the gathering, Randy ran into Ken Fadley, or Gus Margazano, and Randy invited him to come visit sometime. And Gus, or in real life, Ken, actually visited. And once the ATF learned that the Aryan nations uh, were looking to replace the reader- the, their leadership uh, with new leaders, and even formed a small militia in Montana. And it was here that Fadley found an opening. Cleverly named the Militia of Montana or the Montana Militia or something like that. The governor of Montana is like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't set this up. I didn't ask for this. (laughs) Uh, Randy was very strapped for cash at this point, and when Fadley offered him the chance to go meet these Montana guys and sell them sawed-off shotguns for cash, Randy agreed. Yeah, this is... This is where the setup becomes almost entrapment, as we'll see later on in the trial. Right. Like, Ken pretty much says, like, go through the details on what you're going to do with this gun. Very, like, detailed, oriented with me so that I know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, pointing at the gun. He's like, you mean cut it here? Like, pretty much just, like, holding the microphone up to Randy's face. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Later on, probably during the trials, uh, Randy would say that Ken offered him the opportunity while Fadley actually said that Randy asked him about the opportunity. Um, After their meeting, Fadley went back to his ATF superiors and told them that Randy would be a good pawn to get them to the new higher-ups of the Montana skinheads. But, like much before, he was pretty unimportant. But that was good, because they needed someone who wouldn't stand out. Right, right, right. And... I just thought it was interesting, like, the reason why sawed-off shotguns were a big deal, because I thought, like, like yes, it is illegal to sell shotguns in this way to begin with, but sawed-off shotguns are just illegal because um, they're very easy to, A, conceal, but they also are even more deadly than a regular shotgun because the bullets are propelled so much faster just from the lack of a barrel. Right. So just wanted to make a clarification on, like, why does that even matter? Like, that distinction of a sawed-off shotgun. Well, and they're unregistered guns, so it's... Right, and that's also yeah. the biggest Because biggest up part. to this point, Randy has done everything by the books. All those guns are registered. He's gotten them all legally. So he's done nothing wrong legally at this point until mm. this happens. Right. And then two weeks, two weeks later, Fadley and Randy met up, and Randy gave him the guns. Five inches shorter than legal, and they were not registered. Now, Fadley had to attempt to get Randy to come to Montana with him, but Randy was disappointed that he wasn't getting the amount of money he was promised because the Weavers needed so much money at this time. Because they're still renting a house right now. Right. Alongside trying to maintain their actual cabin. Mm -hmm. So they're putting all of the money that they pretty much got from selling all of their things to use to build their home and Vicky's not working she's working around the cabin mm-hmm. and he's just trying to find odds and ends work so not a lot of cash flow yeah none none at all but uh, also at this time they're actually having more and more fights with their neighbors so in episode one we mentioned a couple of different land disputes that uh, the weavers and their neighbors were having but now 
the Raw family actually heard about the Weavers running bad dealings with other neighbors and had, have, and had been having their own issues with uh, radical groups on their hill. And the Weavers seemingly only had one group of friends now, the Grider family. Randy was desperate, but so was Fadley. Yeah, he he was pretty much ready to like get this over with. He'd been undercover for so long now. He didn't think it was going to be this long of a job. Like, <laughs> did he think it was just going to be like one little camp out, have to eat a couple <laughs> yeah, of hot dogs with mustard? And... Right. So he didn't really have any more push with Randy because Randy has now suspected him of being an informant and actually confronted him about it. And for the past, I don't know, six months or so. Ken hadn't even been wearing a wire because he didn't want Randy to find it and immediately figure out he was actually an informant. So, Fadily returned back to the Aryan Nations, but the new security deputy flagged him for having mismatched license plates that didn't match to his fake name of Gus Gus Magisono, and he avoided any severe consequences by talking his way out of it, but he was kicked off of the compound for good. So now they had only one more option left, which was Randy. So after the Aryan Nations caught three higher, or after three Aryan Nations higher ups got caught at the local compound in a sting operation, some of who Randy knew personally and had been to their houses, the Weavers were even more suspicious of people. They didn't know who was informants and who wasn't. And shortly after this, their only friends left, the Griders, got evicted from their home. So now, they were pretty much all alone on the mountain. So Fadily had his cover blown, so his boss went to go visit Randy and tell him what the situation was. They went to their house, found one of the kids. The kid said he wasn't home. So they remember that he would sometimes go into town and stay at a motel with Vicky. So they went to the motel and actually found Vicky standing outside smoking, and Randy came out when Vicky called for him. And Herb Byerly, who was Fadily's boss, told Randy that they had evidence that he had illegally sold sawed-off shotguns, and although it hasn't gone to court yet, they had photos and audio that could get him convicted on weapons charges. But they said he could get out of it if he cooperated and helped them. So this is where they're trying to flip him. Randy gave them a pretty straightforward answer. You can go to hell. Right. Like, that's just with the persona that we've kind of built in these two episodes. Like, you can honestly expect him to say that. Like, right. There's no way he was going to actually flip. And Right. And in his eyes, he had been set up to do that. Right. So the fact that he was set up means that he really didn't do anything wrong. He was just trying to get money for his family. And now the, mm-hmm. the government was entrapping him to get him to go to prison and break up the family. Right, the Zionists. Yep. So Vicky started writing letters, about, more letters, about the conspiracy against them. First, these Aryan Nations guys, and now the Weaver family. But with the taxes stacking up and still no money, the family was kind of in a pinch. So Randy offered to turn himself in to save trouble for the family, but of course everyone, including all of the kids, emphatically said no. So they did what they always did, and became even more radical. So by the winter of 1990 into 1991, the family was in really dire straits money-wise. The winter was rough, and they could barely cut any firewood to sell in town, so they were considering selling their truck to make ends meet. But one day, on their way into town, Vicky and Randy stopped because they saw a couple who had broken down on the highway. 
as Randy approached the driver, the male who was under the hood, and Vicky talked with the woman who was standing on the side of the road, the man suddenly turned and pushed a pistol in Randy's face, and the woman chased Vicky and tackled her into the snow. The car breakdown was a setup, and the sheriff and the ATF popped out of the camper that was hitched to the truck. So Randy was hauled off to jail for his gun charges, and Vicky was sent back home. After a night in jail, a local attorney came and set up release terms for Randy while they awaited his trial. This man, named Stephen Ayers, set up an unsecured bond for Randy worth $10,000 to hold him to the terms of his release. That meant that if Randy didn't abide by the rules set or skip down on his court date, that he would owe $10,000. It does not specify how the $10,000 has to be paid, just that he would owe something worth $10,000. Hmm. But Ayers didn't understand what an unsecured bond meant, so he told that he told Randy that if he didn't attend his court date, that his land was going to be sold to pay back the debt specifically. So now, Randy thought that the government was coming to take his family's home. And to make matters worse, Randy was told to appear back in court on February 19th. But then he got a notice in the mail telling him his court date was March 20th. However, the actual trial date was February 20th. Neither of the right dates were given to him. And this small mistake would be the catalyst for everything that would follow. Right, like we talked a lot about just the miscommunications and the lack of communication, as well as just this Ayers guy just completely messing up his job. Yeah, um, he just didn't understand what an unsecured bond was. I feel like you should know if you're an attorney. Right, well he was a public <laughs> attorney pretty much, he was a public defender, so I mean granted, he's not like this all-star guy, but I mean you should still know, or right. at least look it up if you don't know. Right, like if your if your client is uh, either going to go to jail or have to pay a money fine, I feel like they should know. But just to backtrack to the actual arrest when they stopped over and thought they were helping this couple, like that in my mind is definitely the breaking point. Oh yeah, them. very like much. That's when they just really they will never leave this mountain again. Because now Vicky sees her husband getting taken away for something that was a setup. Literally this time a setup. Right. Like they thought that they were just help they thought they were doing like the good Christian thing, like stopping and helping their neighbor with uh like a broken down truck and instead they got like forced into the snow, like Randy got a gun pulled on them, so Both of them did. Both like, of them did, yeah. correct. So like they were this was one hundred percent kind of the straw that break the camel's back and that, their paranoia. Yeah, and this is the beginning of everything that the Weavers believe about the government now starting to come true piece by piece. And right. as we go, it just keeps confirming all of what they believe. So, right. Like, th this event was basically their justification. Yeah. And then they, they were even told that the government's coming for their land. So it's, like, literally every single thing that they believed or were scared of is basically getting validated. Yeah, it's it's not good. Not great, Bob. Not great, Randy. <laughs> so, like you mentioned, this is when Vicky and Randy decided that the mountain is just going to be where they're going to gonna stay. Like, they will not come down for anyone. Whether it's the government, friends, family, like anyone, and they are staying up there. They didn't really have any more friends. Yeah. They were pretty much on their own. Right, Aside right. from their family that came and visited once a year mm -hmm. but 
And that isolation probably had a huge part of it. Like, they were already isolated, but they still had neighbors, and now they're all gone. Right. Well, and Sarah's pretty much a little Vicky at this point. Mm -hmm. She's running things with the kids, and now she's telling everyone, like, they set my dad up. They're trying to break up our family. Yeah. So. Um, Vicky uh, started writing letters to family telling them what had happened. And they honestly had the, or they supposedly had the sound of, like, saying goodbye. But she also wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney of Idaho, the Servant of the Queen of Babylon letter. And this is a pretty big turning point as well, because this is where now she's sending letters to higher-ups in the U.S. government that's putting more of a target on their back to all of these law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. Because as you're going to hear what Evan says from the letter, but... It's not good stuff. Very anti-government. Uh, it said, and I quote here, the tyrant's blood will flow, which if you're trying to remain off the radar, I feel like sending a, a letter to a elected official with those words probably isn't the best way to do it. Right, because at this point, they're pretty much just a target for local law enforcement now because they've, he's been taken to jail and also the ATF. But mm-hmm. as far as the FBI knows, he's a nobody because the ATF's not communicating with them. So it's pretty much just like this pretty small-time operation until she sends this letter. Right, right, right. And once she sends that letter, it actually gets picked up by the U.S. Marshals, who found out that Vicki Weaver was the wife of Randy, who had just been arrested. And now they had feared that the Weavers could turn into another Bob Matthews situation. So... They definitely paid a uh, target on their back with that letter. Dave Hunt was the U.S. Marshal put in charge of the investigation of Randy. He went around Sandpoint and asked locals about Randy Weaver, people like the Griders and a gun shop owner who had sold Randy some guns. And by the end of the trip, Hunt had a picture of who Randy was. He was paranoid, very sociable, lazy, and not as militarily dangerous as people thought. And more importantly, Vicky was the one in charge. But at the same time, Randy and Vicky got a clue from a friend who told them that there were plants in their area. Not like... Not like their trees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like informant plants. Right, just people hiding as plants. Yes. Like <laughs> yeah, like the bush in Fortnite. So when Vicky's parents and the Griders visited, along with Kevin Harris, their young adult friend, uh, who kind of came and went throughout the years, uh, they all heard from Vicky that nobody could be trusted anymore. The marshals, including Dave Hunt, were starting to realize that this case was going to be more difficult than they initially thought. Everyone that Dave interviewed said it was a terrible idea to go up there and to try and get Randy down. Yeah, because at this point, he doesn't think that this guy's really anything to be scared of. He mm-hmm. just thinks this guy's kind of another paranoid guy who thinks that the government's out to get him but he's not gonna harm he's not gonna like hurt anyone but everybody that he asks because he just kept asking people like why don't i just go up there and try and get him out they're like that is literally the worst thing you could do because now they don't trust anyone because they've just been set up Mm -hmm. they got told the wrong court date by the government and now they're trying to say you missed your court date you're in trouble you need to come down and they're not having any of it and all of them have guns. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally the entire family yeah, is always, at, always has a pistol or something. As we'll them. talk about a little later, it's f- shocking yeah. how much 
time the kids spend carrying guns. Yeah, like these teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> but Dave Hunt's boss, Ron Evans, was trying to suggest that they would need to take a tactical approach to get Randy out of the cabin. But with the kids up there, that idea was put to the side. Dave Hunt did his best to push off the use of the SOG, the Special Operations Group, the military-style tactic- tactical unit of the U.S. Marshals. But eventually they realized they might be useful for surveillance. So Dave Hunt met, met with the group, and they sent their profile of the Weavers over to a psychologist, who said that Randy was a danger to officials who attempt to capture him. He said Randy had indoctrinated his family to the point that they would fight to the death if anyone tried to capture a member of the family. He may have even booby-trapped his entire property. Along with that assessment, the SOG gave an initial surveillance report that if Weaver did not leave the cabin, they should send armored cars up and drag him out, which is quite the different report than what Dave initially had. The SOG chief, the SOG chief said it was the worst fugitive case he had ever seen. Which is ridiculous. It's literally just one man and his family that were set up over a gun charge and now won't come because he missed his court date, which he was told two wrong dates. So in Randy's eyes, he's literally done nothing wrong. And Mm -hmm. to an extent, that is true. But that also doesn't justify being stubborn and staying up on your mountain and not coming down to face justice for what you, whether or not it was your fault, like you could probably beat this case now. You have more excuse than ever to have missed your court date. Right, he would just have to get a better defender than old Steven. Yeah. But it's <laughs> very true. I mean, in his eyes, he's done nothing wrong. And like you mentioned, like, if you're told the wrong date, why would you show up on the right date? And alongside that, psychologist notes that Randy would fight to the death for his family. He also said that Vicky was, like, the head of the family and that he considered her dangerous because... He believed she was so fervent in her beliefs that she would rather kill the family than let them be captured. So Mm -hmm. at this point, now they're thinking we have a group of psychopathic parents who are going to kill their children. Right. It's just kind of shocking given all the information that we know now, like how they that psychologist came to that conclusion. Right. Especially after Dave Hunt said, like, he's not that dangerous. Right. So. Yeah, that is kind of. Kind of saying like that one report just really set a lot of this in motion, um, like getting the SOG involved, uh, as well as, well, granted, they did have guns on them all the time. So I guess yeah. they could maybe see where they get the idea that, hey, these people are dangerous. But I don't think, based on the information that we've talked about so far, that like they would actually shoot a U.S. Marshal. No, they've never pointed guns <clears throat> at anyone. Correct. And right. even Sarah said, like, fa- like, our dad taught us very strictly when he taught us how to use guns. Like. Mm-hmm. But at this time, the marshal sent a friend of the Weavers, Rodney Willie, to visit the family to try and convince Randy to come down and meet with them to avoid a potential confrontation. They said that they could get the charges dropped and Randy could be cleared, with the worst possibility being a probation. But Randy and the family wouldn't budge. He was set up from the start and was innocent, so why should he show up for a rigged system? The Zionists were behind this, Vicky said. 
alongside the Illuminati and the Masons. All the big guns. <laughs> yeah, she really hit the big three. The trifecta. Of, yeah, the, the unholy trinity, if yeah, you will. Yeah, the conspiracy trinity. Yep. All we need is like some lizard people. And this is just like... <laughs> yep. Dave Hunt used another friend of the Weavers, Alan Jepson, to carry letters back and forth between the two parties. They were the predictable, the one world government was setting them up. And eventually, Vecchi closed the line of communication, basically confirming that they were never coming down. Yeah, and this whole time, there's no, ho- there's no phone in the home. So nope. <laughs> they have to pe- keep sending people up there because there's no other way they're going to get any communication between them and the Weavers. Right, right. Yeah, there was no, no line of communication except through these letters. While all this was happening, Vicky is very much pregnant. And her parents, as well as Kevin Harris, were still visiting. The Jordisons had met with ATF agents before seeing their kids and grandkids, but even they couldn't sway Vicky anymore. And after their visit on October 24th, 1991, Vicky gave birth to their fourth child, a little baby girl. Vicky gave birth to their firstborn, a son. <laughs> Do you know that Tyrannius was governor of Syria? I did. <laughs> Uh, following the people that a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. non like Christian grade school people are like, what the fuck, the fuck? are they talking yeah, about? Yeah, <laughs> like seven people or like yeah, seven people probably understood yeah. all of that. Following their previous two children, Samuel and Rachel, was trans was translated to Lamb of L and Gift of L, respectively. They named the girl Elishaba. L is my savior. But the family's relative peace was going to be introduced, or excuse me, intruded on in less than a year. Yeah, they wanted to have L in like all of the names, except for Sarah. Sarah just kind of got left out. But she still had a biblical name, so it fit the the criteria. They were literally like, all right, now catch this L. Except it was like, (laughs) catch this God. (laughs) Um, Different news outlets caught wind of the story and started publishing articles about the family that was defying the feds by holing up in the mountain cabin. Now, the government looked like they had their tails between their legs and were incapable of handling one man on a mountain. And this is where all of these news outlets and different reporters start calling this a fortress on the mountain or a compound on the mountain. Right. Which is just... So wrong. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it, setting them up to be villains. Because you think you see a headline that says mountain fortress under FBI watch or whatever. It's just like, obviously, you're going to think like, oh, these people are just like buttoned down and ready to shoot, which is not the case at all. It's literally a plywood cabin. Like, it's not a fortress. Yeah, it's a cabin that's not even as big as like the, the dimensions in the basement we're recording right yeah. now. Yeah. The way the media spins things sometimes, specifically in this case, when it was the only avenue of information or channel of information, yeah, that just puts such a weird picture in people's head that there were Aryan nations like supporting fortresses in the mountains. Yeah, and this is not to say, like we mentioned at the beginning, the reporters did a great job on this story overall. Yes. But it's just some little things like phrasing of different things that really kind of turned how you looked at the story. Mm-hmm. So, But by the end of March of 1992, the Marshals had a meeting at their headquarters to come up with a definitive plan on how to get Randy down from the mountain. So there was a number of different plans that got proposed, but the one that was decided upon was proposed by a man named Arthur or Art Roderick. It was a three-part plan, 
The first step would be to organize a hand-picked group of deputies to investigate the cabin, do interviews with people in town, and attempt one last negotiation with the family. Second, they would set up a surveillance on the family to fill in gaps in information. And then third, they would set up a ruse by which Randy would fall, and eventually they would arrest him when he made a mistake. The meeting ended, and the plan began. So Dave Hunt was put in charge alongside Arthur Roderick and a group of five and Dave Hunt and a group of five other men began their work by sending Jepson back up one last time to see what it would take to get Randy down. This is their last chance at negotiation. The response that they got was to stay off Randy's mountain. So then the marshals had 25 crates of equipment sent in and set up a surveillance base in a vacant cabin on the Rouse property who is down the hill from the Weavers. Then, they set up a code word for their surveillance post near the cabin, calling it the Lumberyard. The team went out at night in camouflage to set up cameras and transmitters and started sending photos back to their base at the Rouse Cabin, which was now eerily named Homicide Meadow. Oof. Strong, strong branding for, like, a first-person shooter. Which, I don't know if that's the actual name of what the meadow is, or if that was the name that it was given after this whole incident happened, uh, but that's what I saw it referred to multiple times as, so mm. we're going to call it Homicide Meadow now. So, between April 20th and May 11th, they taped 118 hours on 67 different video cassettes, showing the family's routines and all of their gun-toting. They calculated the amount of time each member of the family was seen with a gun in this footage, and it was calculated out to Randy carried a gun 72% of the time, Vicky 52%, 16-year-old Sarah 38%, 10-year-old Rachel 31%, Kevin Harris, who was now staying with the Weavers pretty regularly, had 66%, but the highest was 14-year-old Sammy, who was seen carrying a weapon 84% of the time. And that's in 120, almost 120 hours of video. Almost 90% of the time, he's got a gun. I can't imagine 14-year-old me handling, handling anything other than, like, a Nerf gun. Right. And this is where we get a lot of the photos or still frames of the family on their, their cabin grounds that we have for evidence and stuff now. Mm -hmm. But Sammy was also seen regularly with his big yellow lab striker. But Sarah has said in interviews that Randy taught the gun kids very strict gun rules, like I mentioned earlier. So it didn't really seem like anything wrong in the family's eyes that all these kids had guns because they knew how to use them. They probably even just carried them because there was probably wild game, like oh, a wolf or something. Like right. A mountain cat, mountain well, lion, excuse me. And the, like the, we'll see in a little bit, but the dogs were very alert. And mm -hmm. so that's how Randy kind of was hoping they would get food, honestly. It's like an elk or something would come through the land and that they would have meat for the winter yeah. because they're very broke at this point. Right. So. So these cameras worked well for a while until one of them was stolen on May 2nd and later found burned and buried on the Weaver property. But the last phase of the plan was moving into place. A deputy named Mark Jurgensen was to pose as a man who bought land behind the Weavers and wait in for a chance to swoop and grab Randy. At this point, they said they were spending $30,000 a month on this operation to try and survey and set up this ruse to get Randy. So Mark Jurgensen became Mark Jensen. He had fake IDs made, and the owner of the land that he was to set up on was paid to let the marshals pretend to buy it and set up a cabin. 
But pressure was mounting for the marshals because Wayne Rao was sick of the marshals sitting on their hands and just sitting on their land as well. It had been 18 months since the investigation started and five months since they set up on the Rao's land. And by August of 1992, the special marshals team was selected. So it was composed of Art Roderick, Dave Hunt, who was the one that knew the area, Frank Norris, who was an EMT, Joe Thomas, who was an electronic specialist, Larry Cooper, a star marshal, and a special operations group ace named Billy Deegan. So these marshals gathered their weapons and supplies like camouflage gloves, and by August, August 20th, they were pretty much ready to go out and start their supergroup surveillance. The goal of the mission on the day that they were planning on going out was to get more updated surveillance on the property and set up new vantage points for cameras and stuff like that. So they woke up early on the next morning on the 21st, left their condo by 2.30 a.m. heading to the Rouse house, and then they hopped out of the cars at the Rouse house at Homicide Meadow. They put on their night vision goggles and started their mile-long trek to the Weaver cabin. They hit a Y split in the trail and separated into two groups. Dave Hunt took Joe Thomas and Frank Norris up the path that led to the hillside overlooking the cabin, while Roderick took Larry Cooper and Billy Deegan straight on the path that led to the base of the Weaver driveway. And this is where things kind of start to take a very downward spiral. I think one of the things that stood out to me, like 30 grand a month for 18 months, that the investigation at, the, at this the thirty thousand I think is just for the five months they actually set up. Okay, but they're still spending money to send Dave Hunt and other agents out to this area to do all this recon on like interviews and right. trying to find different people to talk to and stuff. Like they got to lodge them and all that, so it's mm. still not cheap. Right, just so much money and time for something that could have been avoided with the right court date. Right you now. Literally, all you had to do is print the right paper. Right. Still looking at you, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I know I just went through a ton of stuff pretty quickly. But basically, what is happening now is Dave Hunt originally went out with a group of five other guys to set up the original cameras. That's where they got the 118 hours of footage and stuff. And then eventually he got this other group of guys together with these star marshals and like the uh, EMT and stuff like that. So now they're going back out and this is one of their first missions together, pretty much trying to update their information. Dave Hunt wants to show all of these guys like what's going on. So now at this point, Dave Hunt has split off with these two other guys and left art in charge of these other two guys, Billy and Larry Cooper. Billy Deegan and Larry Cooper. So now they're kind of on property that they don't know all that well. Mm-hmm. So it's it becomes very precarious with these guys. I mean, they're really good at what they do, but that does not mean that they're infallible. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you don't know like the terrain, like this family does. You're kind and you, of be be, a... you don't really know the family. Yeah, right. So no matter how many interviews like that you do, you're still not going to get a hundred percent picture. Yeah. And they're just getting secondhand information because they're getting it all from reports and from Dave Hunt. So it's right. It's not, I mean, he's a firsthand source, so that's good, mm-hmm. but it's not like they did it themselves. So Right, right. That's very true. 
But once they reach that Y in the road, like after they split up, um, with one heading to the Overlook spot uh, and the other heading towards the base of the Weaver's driveway, the Weavers actually began moving about their lands as well. Yeah, because they left their motel at 2.30 to go to the Rouse, but then it was like a two-hour drive or whatever it was, then another hour hike up there, then they split up, mm-hmm. and so at this point, the Weavers are awake. Right. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, day, it's morning by now. The rooster is crow. Oh, yeah. This, this family is out trying to catch anything for meat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the, the group on the ridge was watching with their high-powered binoculars and cameras, snapping photos of the family moving about. Sammy with the smaller dogs and holding his rifle. Kevin Harris sharing a smoke with Handy. With Randy. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a Handy uh, with Randy. Randy <laughs> smoking up. <laughs> They're just looking through their binoculars like, wait, Whoa, what? am I, <laughs> am I seeing this right? <laughs> just being this high profile. And this guy's a dangerous man. <laughs> Just this high, like, highly regarded, like, U.S. Marshal or part of this SOG special group. And you're just... <laughs> and these, yeah. these new guys are like, is this what you've been watching 120 hours of lately? Uh-huh, yeah, 120 <laughs> hours of this? <laughs> there are kids around. They are kids. <laughs> red flags, red flags. Oh, my gosh. That's Not funny. giving a handy to Randy. Yeah. Sharing a smoke yeah, with Randy. Sharing a cigarette with Randy. Uh, Vicky was helping little Alicia. Uh, around 9 a.m., the crew on the ground, closest to the cabin, consisting of Roderick, Cooper, and Deegan, moved along the ridge of trees to get closer. It was really cute, too, the way they described Vicky trying to teach Alicia to walk. Because they were like, she's not old enough yet, because she was just born in October of last year. Mm-hmm. So she's not even one yet. And they were like, yeah, she was trying to help her walk, and she could take a few steps and then would topple over and giggle. Aww. I was like, oh, it's so cute. I, but that just reinforces the picture. Like, this is just a normal family, pretty much, aside from the, all of the guns. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, they're just kind of hanging out, yeah. to be honest. Like, this is just like a typical morning. And they were painted them. to be, like, these dangerous fugitives. Fortress on a mountain. Yeah, so. It just shows kind of the disconnect. Mm-hmm. The group on the ground tossed rocks near the property to see what would alert the dogs, but the dogs did not respond. At this point, they decided to head back down the hill, point out spots to, possible, to possibly hide snipers in the woods, and by 1045, they were ready to meet back up with the other group at the Y. Because another thing that the, the weavers would do is they would set up like one of the smaller dogs outside overnight. And they were tied to a post just on like the edge of the property to oh, pretty much bark if anything came nearby, mm-hmm. like if it whether it be wildlife or whatever. But and in the morning they would go and retrieve that dog every time. So like there's other dogs other than Striker, the big yellow lab, who are on the property. But Striker's pretty much like always with Sammy walking around. Mm-hmm. So oh, good boy, multiple good boys and girls. <laughs> good boys. While the ground group was retreating. The kids were heading out to the edge of the property to do their rounds when Sammy's Yale lab striker caught a whiff and started barking. The boys followed the dog, Randy taking the logging trail and Kevin and Sammy running through the brush and the wood. Vicky waited at the cabin while Sarah and Rachel headed back up the driveway. Randy was hoping the dog caught a whiff of a deer or elk so that they could have some meat for the winter. While the Weaver crew was heading down the hill, Dave Hunt heard the commotion from the ridge they were on. 
He went over his radio and told the other crew that they had to get out of there. They could not be found out. Broderick, Cooper, and Deegan, that sounds like a law firm, but... <laughs> Call 666 Marshals. <laughs> we'll put you in jail. Like, wait, what kind, of, what kind of law firm is this? I don't like this at all. Right. Uh, but Roderick, Cooper, and Deegan took turns covering their back while the other two ran through the brush and the trees. Eventually, the dog got even closer, along with Randy Weaver. When Randy got to the Y in the road, one of the marshals popped out. And here is where two different stories begin to emerge. First, we go through the marshals' side of the story. And here is where even more miscommunication starts to flourish, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. So, from the marshals' side of things, this is what they said. When Randy appears on the road above the marshals, Larry Cooper shows himself and identifies that he is a U.S. marshal. When Randy sees him, he runs off. Arthur Roderick yells as well, but the dog is still growling at him. Cooper sees Billy Deegan jump behind a stump, so he follows suit, jumps into a natural foxhole behind a rock. The dog, still pestering Roderick and ignoring the other two, so Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris walk past Cooper and Deegan, who are now hiding, and towards Roderick, who they still don't see. And it's at this point that the marshals state that Billy Deegan comes out from his cover, tells Sammy and Kevin Harris to freeze, and identifies himself as a U.S. Marshal. But then he says Kevin Harris wheels around and shoots Deegan unprovoked. Cooper then fires back at Harris and drops him. Roderick shot the dog to stop anyone else from finding them, and then both sides traded shots back and forth until Kevin and Sam were either retreating or dead. So that is a very summarized version of the Marshall side of events. Right, and you can clearly see like the Marshall story makes them sound like they were fired upon first, um, that they clearly tried to identify themselves. But now we're going to go through the family's story. Yeah. When Randy approached the Y in the logging road, he saw a man in camouflage jump out with a rifle and yell at him to freeze, but he did not identify that he was a U.S. Marshal. When Randy saw this, he turned around and began heading back towards the house. As he ran, he yelled for Sammy and Kevin to follow him back to the house. They'd been caught in an ambush. At almost the same moment Randy started yelling, Sammy and Kevin appeared by the Y as well. Kevin stated that one of the marshals stepped out of the woods and shot the dog in the back. Seeing this, Sammy yelled, You killed my dog, you son of a bitch, and fired at the marshals. The marshals fired back, hitting Sammy in the arm near the elbow. At this point, Randy shot a shotgun into the air and yelled again for the boys to get home. Sammy turned to run back and yelled to Randy that he was coming. Kevin followed, but when the marshals continued to fire at Sammy, Kevin turned and fired as well to cover his friend, hitting one of the marshals in the process. But after this shot, Sammy was hit square in the back by a shot and fell face first to the ground. Kevin checked to see if Sammy was still alive, and when he found that he wasn't, he went back to the cabin. So as you can see, very different retellings of what happened. Oh, totally different retellings. I I mean, Stryker was Sammy's dog. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine being a 14-year-old boy and living on an isolated mountain, having this dog that follows you everywhere. That's like your best friend. Mm-hmm. So seeing a guy come out and shoot your dog just because he's given away their location, 
Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch. Yeah, like, like, I'd be pissed. Yeah, can't imagine. Yeah. Would, uh, 14-year-old me would probably do the same thing. Maybe. Right. I mean, it's such a muddy situation. Yeah, and it's definitely, if, like, if you think about it from the family's perspective, it's just these random people jumping out of exactly. the woods. Like, in camouflage, because they were camouflaged. I mean, they just spent the entire night hiding cameras and staking out the land. And they had rifles and guns, so, like, if they jump out, like, you don't know. They haven't identified themselves, according to the family's story. Like, these are just random people that may have, like, read a newspaper and wanted to, like, take matters into their own hands. Right. And, like, I watched a primetime news documentary from, it was, like, 95 or something. So this is only a few years after these events occurred. And they take Randy... Or Randy takes the reporter back to the land and they walk through what happened basically. And Randy says, like, I was right about here when he jumped out and said, Freeze, Randy, but he never identified himself. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Randy just turned and ran back because he's like, Now they're coming for us. Like, they're coming to take out our family. Mm-hmm. And so basically, it was just terrible timing because right when he realized, like, we got to get out of here is when Sammy and Kevin get there. Right. And Kevin had fully admits, like, I was the one that shot that guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I shot a marshal. Because when the reporter asks, like, did you know a marshal had been shot? And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, who do you think did that? Or who do you think hit him? Because everyone's shooting at this point. Mm-hmm. He's like, it was probably me. So he knows, like, I shot one of these guys. Right, right, but right. Either way, at this point, a 14-year-old boy has been shot in the back while trying to run back to his house Mm -hmm. and a federal marshal has been shot and is bleeding in the forest. And that's where we'll pick (laughs) back up. (laughs) So things have spiraled very much out of control. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it's only going to get more tense and we're still not done with bodies being dropped. Believe it or not, there's more to go. Yes. Can you see why this case is so straightforward and also very muddy? Right. (laughs) Can you see why we're doing three parts? Yeah. Narrowing it down is very hard, but at the same time could be summed up in an episode. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we will pick back up from here in episode three, which will more than likely be our finale on our series of Ruby Ridge. We will go through the standoff and the trial and all of that good stuff on the next episode. But hopefully this will tide you over for a week until then. This was, uh, as we mentioned in the first episode, a little more action-packed than yeah. the beginning. <laughs> that was just very normal and mundane. I know. I was sweating during this entire recording, just knowing what's coming up. So action-packed. I know. Well, And when I was reading the book, I was like halfway through, I'm just like, man, nothing's really happened yet. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, literally everything explodes. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's wild. Can't wait for episode three. <laughs> I can't either. All right, Ev, where can the people find us? You can find us at, or on Twitter, at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco. You can find myself at whatevskis on Twitter. You can also find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. Or you could just type in gems of history podcast and we'll show up. We'll be there. You can also finally find us on TikTok at Gems of History Pod. Richard Butler's going to be taking over our TikTok for the week. (laughs) The Richard Butler takeover. I I don't even know if he's still alive, honestly. (laughs) 
I can't imagine trying to explain to him what TikTok is. Let me like, see if Richard Butler is still alive. He'd literally be like, TikTok is the sound a clock makes, sir. What are you doing? It's so funny, too, because Richard Butler is also the name of a singer. So oh. <laughs> I was, like, searching for, like, Richard Butler, like, speeches and stuff. So I typed in Richard Butler on YouTube and just got a bunch of music videos. So I was like, wait, hold on. Is yeah, this guy, like, prolific for something else? Rut row. All right, Richard Butler is definitely dead. He died at age 86 in Hayden, Ohio, er, Hayden, Idaho, on September 8th, 2004. Good riddance. I mean, I'm not going to say RIP. Not going to do it. No. Well, not. Fuck that guy. Yep. <laughs> but yeah. A firm FTG. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I hope you guys are enjoying the series so far and are looking forward to the end of this saga. And then we can continue on with other topics and eventually get to Waco and Oklahoma City and all that good stuff. So I think what, what a fun way to start off our official first episode of Black History Month and talking about the most white story yeah. in the world. <laughs> Well, at least we're making fun of a lot of white supremacists, I guess. True, yes. <laughs> happy happy Black History Month yes. to everyone mm-hmm. out there. Uh, but yes, this will conclude our episode, part two, going into part three. Ah, I can't wait. This story is just, it fascinates me. It's heating up. Anyways, you guys can email us at gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you guys want to get in touch with us there. If you guys got any stories about this topic or any other topics that we cover, we always love hearing from you guys. So you can reach out to us there. But until next time, everyone stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy your week.